Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and it's book club time, but it's not just any book club. It's our December book club and we want to help you through this intense book buying time of the year. We're bringing you our recommendations for book gifts for the readers in your life or maybe for a little bit of self-gifting. And later in the podcast, we're also going to be bringing you an interview with Maggie O'Farrell, the author. I talked to her about her brilliant new book, The Marriage Portrait. You'll be hearing all our recommendations in a moment. And one of my recommendations is Surrender by Bono, which is one of my books of the year. I absolutely loved it. Now, I am a U2 and a Bono fan, but we were lucky enough to get a bit of a clip read by Bono. So I thought we'd start our episode today with that. I was born with an eccentric heart. In one of the chambers of my heart where most people have three doors, I have two. Two swinging doors which on Christmas 2016 were coming off their hinges. The aorta is your main artery, your lifeline, carrying the blood oxygenated by your lungs and becoming your life. But we have discovered that my aorta has been stressed over time and developed a blister, a blister that's about to burst, which will put me in the next life faster than I can make an emergency call, faster than I can say goodbye to this life. That was Bono there and he's reading from Surrender, which, as I said, is one of my favourite books this year. Anyway, to help you out with the books you're going to buy this Christmas, we asked our book club members, Neve Towie, Anne Ingle and Bernice Harrison for their book recommendations this Christmas. And we're going to start with my mother, Anne Ingle, who, as you know, listens to books on audio now as a result of her macular degeneration. And after that, we'll hear from Bernice and then Neve and then me. So enjoy. Take it away, Anne. Hi, everyone. I know we're going to recommend all the lovely books that we read during the year, like Lessons in Chemistry and the rest. But these are ones that are very special to me, and I, I'd just like to share them with you. The first one is The Little Snake by A.L. Kennedy, which she narrates herself. This short novel is a classic and I, I really believe it will be cherished by anyone lucky enough to receive it as a gift. It was published in 2019, but I only came across it recently when I wanted to find out more about the author, A.L. Kennedy. Now, some would say this book is for children, but if it is, I'm still one of them, because I really, really loved it. It's a fable. The Little Snake is about a child called Mary, who lived in an unnamed town full of rose gardens where kites fly from the rooftops. The snake comes to visit Mary and her kindness to him forges a lifelong bond between the two. 
The snake comes and goes in her life as she grows older and is always there to help and guide her. In her turn, she shows the snake a new way of loving. The Little Snake is a gentle and unsophisticated story, which basically, I suppose you could say, is about the human condition. It's a story of love and kindness and in the gentlest of ways of death. Then the next one is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Now, I'm not a great love of historical fiction. A lot of Hilary Mantel stuff goes over my head and I just can't deal with it. But this one was different and I couldn't stop listening to it. It's, um, as you know, my Maggie O'Farrell, but it's narrated by Genevieve Gaunt, who did a great job on this one. So The Marriage Portrait is an historical novel that tells some of the actual events but it invents others, which I found very satisfactory. Sometimes the truth is too much to take. In 1558, Lucretia married the Duke of Ferrara. A year after entering her husband's court in 1560, aged just 16, she died. Poison was suspected, and there are several portraits of Lucretia still surviving. But nearly 300 years after her death, Robert Browning wrote... It's a very famous dramatic monologue, My Last Duchess, in which the Duke displays a portrait of his late wife and allows the reader to decide that, insanely jealous, he murdered her. But Maggie O'Farrell has not stuck strictly to the facts, but has written a tale of a young girl forced into marriage far too early to a manipulative, power-hungry man. The result is a great read with elements of a fairy tale. And the ending is very satisfactory. And I really loved every minute of it. I was living there. I was there. I was back in that time. So well written. So I would recommend that one. And the other one is, um, oh, this is a lovely story, The Amusements by Angela Flannery. And this is narrated by Donal O'Haley. And uh, very well done again. And such a beautiful book. It's set in the seaside town of Tremor in County Waterford, which many of us uh, have been in there. It's not quite as wonderful as it used to be, I believe, but uh, it's still a great place. It's a place of caravan parks and chippers and, of course, the amusement arcade. Flannery has written a set of stories that can be read alone, but at the same time are so very cleverly linked. And what was important to me was I cared about all the characters in this book, each one of them you know, took on the life of their own. And that's very important when you're reading a book that you can really feel the people that you're, you're reading about. In fact, it, it stuck with me so long that I'm, I'm actually still thinking about those people. Um, and I, I'm sure if you read it yourself, you know what I mean, because we kind of unexpectedly come across them later on in their lives, you know, because maybe as a young person, we read about them. And then further on in the book, we see them again, growing up in a different part of their journey. You know, and it's, it's just really very, very clever and very beautifully done, and the writing is wonderful. Uh, she's not writing about holidaymakers in this book, not the holidaymakers who go to tomorrow, but the ones who stick it out and live there all the time, the locals. And we're exposed to all their peculiarities and experiences over 30 years, I suppose. I just loved it. So that's a big plus for me, The Amusements by Angela Flannery. And I'm throwing this one in because 
it's something different and not something I would usually read, but I don't know. It's the um, the name of it appealed to me. Sankofa, it is called. It's by Chid Buru Honours. Well, please forgive me if I've said that incorrectly, but it's quite difficult. Yes, this is her third novel, I think. It's narrated by Sarah Powell, who did a great job on it. So it's Sankofa is the name of the book. I think that means getting back in uh, some kind of African language. Anyway, Anna Bain is the heroine of this book. She's a 50-something woman of mixed race coming out of a failed marriage at this stage when she's uh, in the book. And as the story begins, her mother dies. In her mother's belongings, Anna uncovers a diary written in the late 1960s belonging to Frances Agrera, the father her mother never told her about. And it's fascinating, the diary. It's about life as it was for a man of colour in London at that time. And that is fascinating. And his journey then to leave London and go back to his home. And Well, we don't know exactly where it is because she makes up a fictitious place called Bamana in West Africa. So Anna then begins her search to find her father in West Africa. Anna's journey turns up many unpredictable twists and turns, and they're fascinating and intriguing, and I couldn't stop reading it. But the ending is uplifting, which is always a bonus. Well written and um, narrated, and well worth a listen, I think, to this one. Anyway, um, I just want to wish you all a very happy Christmas. Just be very kind to yourself, right? And remember, everything doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be what it is. But do um, buy books for Christmas because everybody should be reading these days. Escape from the real world. Good luck. Happy Christmas. Bye. Well, we were asked to pick three books and I've picked four, which is cheating a little. But the first book is Louise Kennedy's Trespasses. I noticed that reading, you know, look, it's no surprise I picked that because I noticed that Martin Doyle, our books editor, he asked very eminent authors what their favourite book of the year was and Trespasses by Louise Doyle. It's a book that I think will surprise you because you mightn't want to read it because you'll think, and certainly I didn't want to read it because I thought, oh God, a book set in 1975, Belfast. No, I don't want to read that. But in fact, it's a fantastic study of human nature, really. The central character is Kushla. Kushla is a young woman. She's 24. She's a teacher and she's Catholic. I'm saying she's Catholic because that is really pertinent because this is a story where sectarianism is at the basis of just about everything. And for her, she's so used to it now. And for us, the reader, that's so shocking. It's shocking even at this remove. That was 1975. Even at this remove it is. She has an affair with a barrister. He's married. He's Protestant. So that is sort of the central relationship, but there are very, very many relationships. And Kennedy is extraordinary at teasing out family bonds, societal bonds, what happens in a community when things are so badly wrong and how the troubles, and of course now I'm starting to think that the troubles was just flipping euphemism, how the troubles impacted on every aspect of people's lives. I've already given it to my son to read because while I grew up going to school, listening to the radio in the morning and hearing of the atrocities in the North, I think there's a whole generation who 
don't know anything at all, really. And the way Kennedy treats the everyday atrocities that people had to endure is really, really enlightening and heartbreaking. It's also funny, just in case I've made it sound so desperate, it's also really, really funny. I'm going to give it to my sister for Christmas because above all else, it's a terrific novel. It's a terrific read. I don't think I've ever knowingly read uh, a sports book before, you know, a book about sports or a book about a sports person. But Kelly by Kelly Harrington with Roddy Doyle is, I think, a top read for anybody. You don't have to be listening, interested in boxing. It helps maybe in parts when because there's quite vivid descriptions of the whole, the whole technique of boxing, the wrapping the hands, the into the ring, the keeping the weight, all that. All the technicalities of boxing is there. But actually, above all else, this is a story about human triumph. It's a story about a young girl from inner city Dublin, who was very much going down the wrong track. She was on the wrong wrong track, willfully on it. And she changed and she became a world champion. And of course, it made me also think, what are we like here? That a woman, we're so poor on women's sports and giving adequate coverage to women's sports in general, that a woman has to win a gold Olympic medal before we've even heard of her. Certainly, that was the first time I heard of Kelly Harrington. And I noticed going into the bookshop, I was in the bookshops a lot this week, and I noticed the cover is beaming down at us from the bookshelves of Kelly by Kelly Harrington. And it's interesting to me that instead of choosing a picture of a boxer of Kelly in the ring or Kelly holding up the belt or Kelly holding the gold medal. No, it's just her face looking out and she's got this fantastic open face. You just want to know more about her because she just seems so engaging and her story is one of such triumph and not just gold medal triumph, triumph in every aspect. So Kelly by Kelly Harrington, even if somebody has no interest in sports, which I pretty much don't actually, but Yeah, that's to me as a winner. The third book, I picked up a book called The Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding by Owen Dalton during the year. I picked it up for two reasons. One, it's set in the Bear Peninsula, a place that I love. But Bear Peninsula is probably the least known, the least visited, the least maybe popular of the Cork Peninsulas. And what Owen Dalton did and why it's a memoir, really, and why it's a personal journey, he bought 70 acres of land on the peninsula, a farm, an old broken down farm. The land down there is pretty poor. And he set about rewilding it. And by rewilding it, just really returning it to nature to see what would nature do when given the chance. And now he's got this rainforest full of diverse habitats. Beautiful. Uh, He's opening it to the public, I think. I think you have to make appointments. But anyway, the book is all about the process of doing that and his story and how he, he wasn't a farmer. He's interested in nature. He's interested in ecology. He's interested in sustainability. And he bought these 70 acres and moved from Dublin down there to do that. So, you know, who doesn't love a story of triumph over natural adversity and creating creating something new? And it also, I think, why it's a good book to give to anybody, really, is that certainly after reading it, it improved my experience of walking in nature, it improved my experience of walking in forests. I started looking at the moss differently and the undergrowth, the trees. And I think they're the kind of really good present books actually. So I would highly recommend that. It is An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding by Owen Dalton. Now, I'll give it one caveat, but I don't mind saying it, is that, look, it's not the, it's not the, 
best written book. It's a little bit unwieldy. It's very long. But still, it's a book you're going to pick up, you're going to put down, you're going to pick up again. And every time you pick it up, you're going to learn something interesting in it. I always give myself a book at Christmas uh, and I usually give myself a really lovely, easy to read page turner. And if any of you out there are the same, can I recommend Breaking Point by Adele Coffey? It was published at the start of this year. So, you know, it mightn't be top of people's minds, but it's a great story. She's an Irish journalist, but this story is set in America. And the novel, it's something that I think a lot of women can really understand and can sort of how one mistake can just lead to catastrophe. And the mistake we learn at the very, very start, Susanna, top flight doctor, she has it all. She's got a fabulous husband. She's got a fabulous house. She's got a fabulous, look, she's got a fabulous flip and everything. And she's driving to work one day. She's bringing the baby. She's meant to drop the baby off at crash and doesn't. And she gets out of the, the car, runs in, starts her day, busy day. She forgets the baby and the baby dies. And it's about the fallout of what happens then. And it touches on all those things we think about. What happens when you're, you're too busy to pay attention? What happens when one mistake causes everything to collapse? It's a real page turner. It's perfect for those few days between Christmas and New Year when you're sitting around with one hand in the tub of roses and the other just turning pages. So I highly recommend Breaking Point by Adele Coffey. Hello everyone, it's Neve Towie here with my book recommendations for the end of the year. So the first one I have on my list here is Love in a Time of War, My Years with Robert Fisk by Lara Marlowe. She's our Paris correspondent, brilliant journalist in her own right. This is a book you've probably heard about before, but I just picked it up on my way to, on holidays um, a couple of weeks ago. So my head is currently buried in it and I'm really enjoying it. It's about Lara's relationship with the famed war correspondent Robert Fisk and their lives together in the Middle East, uh, reporting on the various uh, wars and devastation that happened in that part of the world. It's just really fascinating insight as well into journalism, I suppose. So from that perspective, I really enjoyed it too. But it's brilliantly written, as we'd always expect from Lara. So I've really enjoyed that one. The second one I wanted to recommend was Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmoose. You'll have remembered we reviewed this book on the podcast a few months ago and I don't think we could find a bad word to say about it. It's about a single mother, Elizabeth Zott, who's a brilliant chemist in a man's world in 1960s America and how she becomes the unlikely cooking show host and role model to women across the country. It's just really zippy and really well written and she's a really infectious main character. So I would really recommend that one. The third book I'd like to recommend is Factory Girls by Michelle Gallen. We also reviewed this on the podcast. Um, I didn't get a chance to come on that day and I was annoyed because I loved this book so much. I thought it was really funny and crude and didn't pull any punches and I really loved the main character for all of those reasons. It's about uh, three friends who are working in a factory in a small town in Northern Ireland and all their various ambitions and hopes for the following September. So I thought that one was really funny and really good for any younger women in your life if you're looking for something to gift. The fourth book then is one I haven't read but it's the type of book I've been seeking out. The reason I wasn't able to come on the podcast for Factory Girls was because my dad had um, a really serious accident that day, actually, that we recorded the podcast. 
he had a, a life-changing accident where he amputated um, his hand. So obviously we've been watching him go through hell and having to adapt to a new life with no hand and all of the obstacles that come with that. And I've been seeking out anything that could kind of help show us the way forward, I suppose, um, and show us people who have gone through this before and have adapted and who have thrived. So this book I found is called Driving Forwards. It's by Sophie Morgan. It's a memoir written by her uh, Sophie after she had a, a life-changing injury herself in a car crash when she was left in a wheelchair. It's about her recovery and her life since the blurb says that it shows us and inspires us on how to see how adversity can be challenged into opportunity and how ongoing resilience can ultimately lead to empowerment, which is kind of what I see my dad doing every day since his accident and through his recovery. So I think... That's a good one. If you, anybody out there has had a hard year, a life changing year, any difficulties in that sense, it sounds like a really good one. Um, and if I can, I'll report back what it's like. Um, but that's it for me. Happy Christmas, everyone. I am not going to be able to stick to three, so I hope you'll bear with me. I'm definitely going to go over the list, but I'll, I'll do my best. It's Roisin Ingle here, by the way. <laughs> I had so many books I enjoyed this year. I'm going to start with Elizabeth Strout, Lucy by the Sea, because to be honest, if she was writing the words on the back of a box of tea bags or um, a cornflake box, I would read whatever she had to say about anything. Lucy by the Sea uh, is, is just wonderful. It's it's set in lockdown and I thought I'd never enjoy a book set in lockdown because I was so sick of it and didn't want to ever hear about it again. But again, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Strout writing about lockdown is totally different. Um, Lucy Barton, her character from other books that we've loved of hers, is uprooted from her life in Manhattan and bundled away to a small town in Maine by her ex-husband. So we see how she gets on during the pandemic and it's got so much emotion. It's really vivid. It's really moving and actually quite funny. And I just really loved it. It's a very short book, so you'll fly through it. So if you know anyone who loves the kind of writing that Elizabeth Strout does, then I would really recommend that. My next book is not by a... um, woman, it's by a man, and that man is called Mr. Paul Hewson, a.k.a. Bono. And you all know him as the lead singer of U2. He's written this, what I think is one of the best memoirs I've ever read. It's called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. It's searingly honest. It's really funny in parts. And it's also just... He's had such an incredible, remarkable life that I found it just fascinating to read. I mean, it starts off, you get the sense of how you two came together. He paints the picture of Ireland in the 70s and, you know, his family, his father, his mother. There's just a really interesting um, portrait of an artist, I suppose, in this book. And as I said, it's very honest. So I feel like he gives us a lot of himself. It's also a love story, a massive love story about him and his wife, Ali Hewson, and kind of the enduring love affair that they've had and how they've made that work because, you know, I'm sure and it's very clear reading this book uh, it can't be that easy being married to a rock and roll star like Bono but uh, I just found it beautiful I was lucky enough to go to um, his gig in the Olympia recently and that was an incredible privilege so I I think even if you're not necessarily a U2 fan or a Bono fan Surrender might be a book that you might enjoy and definitely there's some people in your lives who will enjoy that. I want to throw a book in that I'm only a bit away through reading and it's by my friend as well so that's a bit cheeky but it's called The The Rod Father by Paul Howard and it's about Roddy Collins. It's written with Roddy Collins who's a football player and manager, former and 
it's just fantastic. It's one of those books that's just full of so many funny anecdotes that you can't kind of fail but buy. I mean, I just, it's cheered me up. I can pick it up on any page and there'll be something there to make me laugh. So I'm throwing in The Rod Father by Paul Howard and Roddy Collins as well. Other people have stolen my other ones, which have been uh, Lessons in Chemistry. And I want to also mention Common Decency by Susanna Dickey, which I just absolutely loved. She's from Northern Ireland. She's a brilliant talent. And that book, it just moved me. And I found the writing stunning. It's set in Belfast. It's about two different women who are sort of wrestling with the sorrows of love and loss. And I, I think it's a really good one. So it's called Common Decency by Susanna Dickey. And I also want to give a shout out. I know I've gone way over my three now, but <laughs> to There's Been a Little Incident by Alice Ryan. Alice Ryan won Best Newcomer of the Year at the Book Awards. And I think it's well deserved. She came on the podcast earlier this year. You remember, did a wonderful interview with us. So There's Been a Little Incident. It's just a great first novel. And finally, and I think I've gone to five now, so I'm very, very sorry, but I really have to do a mention to Rebecca Miller, who also was on the podcast this year, and her book of short stories, Total. It's just fantastic. The writing is amazing. She's just a master at the short story. And there's so much in there that I'm still thinking about it even months later. So Total by Rebecca Miller, a fantastic book of short stories. Sorry for going over my allotted amount of books, but I hope that's giving you something to think about and some inspiration for your own gifts. Some great recommendations there and I hope that helps with all your Christmas shopping. But we're not finished our book club episode yet. We've got a great interview lined up for you. Maggie O'Farrell was born in Northern Ireland in 1972 and grew up in Wales and Scotland. She's worked as a waitress, a chambermaid, a bike messenger, teacher, arts administrator and journalist. Her books include Hamlet and The Distance Between Us and Instructions for a Heatwave, which have all won loads of awards. Uh, she came in to talk to us about her new book, The Marriage Portrait, which tells the somewhat true story of Lucrezia di Cosimo de Medici, who at 15 was forced by her parents to marry the older Duke of Ferrara, thus merging two dynasties. Alfonso spirits her away to a different palace where she suffers and is subjected to totalitarian surveillance. It's a gripping read, so I really hope you enjoy this conversation with the brilliant Maggie O'Farrell. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Maggie. The Marriage Portrait is your ninth novel and it's out now. But while writing the book, you got COVID and were pretty ill, so much so that the doctor in A&E believed you might have had a stroke. So tell us about that first. It sounds horrendous when you're writing your your book. (laughs) Well, yes, so I got COVID about a year ago. Um, And it's a strange strange moment, I think, when you get that positive uh, line on your test. You know, there's this kind of... For so long, there'd been this kind of mysterious, terrifying virus outside your house. And then suddenly it's inside your house and it's inside your body. So it is it is a fright. And it wasn't so bad, you know. But then on the third day, I woke up and actually what happened is that all the symptoms I'd sort of neurological symptoms I'd had as a child when I had viral encephalitis age eight had returned. It was really extraordinary. And there's been no virus in those whatever, 40 odd years or so that has reactivated them like COVID did. So I woke up and I couldn't, I couldn't walk and I couldn't lift up a cup. I couldn't hold a pen. I was shaking. I couldn't balance. And so I I went quite quickly to A&E and they, they thought I'd had a stroke. They kept saying, we think you had a stroke. And I said, I promise you, I haven't. I know what this is. You know, it feels, it felt like the return of an old enemy. You know, I felt like I'd come face to face with a, an ancient adversary. 
So I had lots of, they were great. And I had lots of tests and scans. And then they said, no, you haven't got a stroke. <laughs> and they, we, they said, yes, I think it is. It's just for whatever reason, this virus has, um, you know, this virus has just brought it back. So, and they kept saying, you know, I, I'm, we're sure you'll, we're sure you'll get better. So there were, but there was no proof because nobody, you know, nobody really knows. So mm. it was quite worrying, you know, and they just said, you've just got to rest and hope for the best. So that's what I did. And, and it did very slowly. It, I did get better, but it took me probably about two or three months to be back where I was. So for a while I wasn't really walking and then I was walking with a stick and I had to practice my writing. Cause the worst thing was that I couldn't hold a pen, you know, and then when I could, I couldn't actually write. So that was a bit painful, but my, it's funny, you know, the, your brain is so strange. Cause I, I was able to type a lot longer, uh, a long, a long time before I was able to actually hold a pen again. So that was quite, so I was finishing a draft of my new book, The Marriage Portrait. And so I had a deadline, so I was really stressed. So I was able to type a little bit. So I did, I did manage to meet my deadline, but only just. And going back to encephalitis, actually, I would have pronounced it encephalitis. So I'm glad you, you said it correctly. Encephalitis when you were eight. That was like, um, I mean, you've written a memoir about all the millions of times you nearly died. Okay, 17 (laughs) times, but that's a lot of times. Um, And that was one of them. I mean, they thought you were going to die, didn't they? And you heard someone outside your hospital room saying that. Yeah, I did. So I was I was very ill when I was eight. Yeah. And I had this virus that nobody ever was able to identify, despite lots of tests and lumbar punctures, etc., Um, And so, yeah, they they did expect me to die. But of course, no one tells you that when you're eight. You have to kind of work it out for yourself. Obviously, nobody tells that to a young child and and rightly so. Um, So but I did overhear somebody talking about it in the corridor. So, yeah, I did hear someone say there was a little girl dying in there and I didn't I didn't. It took me a minute to realise that she meant me. So so it, it was a bit of a. It was a shock, but actually, I remember at the time thinking, well, of course, actually, this of course, this is what all this means. You know, I'm in intensive care. I'm in an isolation room. You know, how did I not realise that that was what was happening? Mm. And did it terrify you at the time? Do you remember or what what way did you react? No, I don't think it terrified me. I think I just I think I just felt I I felt resigned and I felt a bit stupid. I thought, well, how did I not realise that? And of course, I felt very sad. Um, but actually, I mean, my main memory of that time, which, you know, of, of course, is quite hazy because I was very sick and it was a long time ago. It's just feeling really ill. <laughs> just mm. feeling really Ill. But in a sense, I was the I was the eye of the storm in a way. I think it was a lot worse for my parents, of course. And it was a lot worse for my sisters, you know, because they were they were feeling the brunt of it. Whereas I was unwell. I was lying in a bed. I was the kind of still centre of it all. Mm. And from that illness, you got a stammer, which I can't hear at all, by the way. <laughs> but I know <laughs> that's very nice of you to say. <laughs> I, I can't because a stammer is a really interesting thing. I mean, we've watched that uh, program about the king. What's his name? It's George, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. The king's speech. Yeah. yeah, the king's speech. Like it's fascinating yeah, and how he overcame it. And you did a lot of work over the years with, with it. And it obviously impacted your sort of use of language as well and, and to do with writing. How, how did all that kind of intersect? I think in some ways, I really believe that my stammer is probably the most formative thing about me. You know, that's the thing that's directed what job I can, can't do, who I make friends with, uh, all kinds of things, really. And I did, you know, it was very, very pronounced during my childhood and my teens and also during my 20s. You know, I had an absolute horror of the telephone. So any job that really involved me using the telephone, I, it was impossible, impossible for me. I couldn't do it. And honestly, Roshi, the day that email was invented and I got it was the day I rejoiced. The idea that you can communicate with people by writing, you know, it was it was a wonderful day. Um, so but I did. I only actually had speech therapy. Actually, it was about 10 years ago because when my youngest was it was a baby and I used to take her along with me. 
because I used to find, you know, I mean, you know, I think being a writer is something naturally uh, probably introverts are, are attracted to, you know, <laughs> because you spend years of your life sitting in your room talking to your imaginary friends. Um, and I think I was so shocked when I, you know, my first book came out and my publisher said, OK, now you're going to literary festivals or events and you're going to talk on stage. <laughs> Absolutely horrified. It's jaw dropping. I just thought, well, I can't do that. How can I do that? And uh, the thing that always has always absolutely petrified me the most is live radio or live television, just the microphone. And actually, when I when I watched the King's speech, my husband said it was like somebody watching a horror movie. <laughs> because <laughs> I kept, every time there's a microphone, I'd go, oh, no. And I was so stressed. I felt it absolutely viscerally in my core, his struggles and just... Not that there's a huge risk of me ever becoming, you know, asked to being the monarch. But <laughs> just the idea of it, that he couldn't say no. Oh, it's just horrific. Yeah, but you so might did, become I... the, the British PM because anyone you know, see they seem to have a lot of them lately. Oh, so. oh my god, don't! <laughs> I don't think I'm eligible. I think I'm. I think I'm too Irish. For You're too overqualified. <laughs> I would say. Um, god, I wouldn't want but, that job. But you know, speaking of jobs, though, because when you went to to study English in Cambridge, um, which I, I think, first of all, I'm like always, I'm, I'm very impressed by people who study in Cambridge or Oxford. So. Well done, you. Don't be, don't be honestly. <laughs> it's not all. It's not all. It's crap. Really, me, I tell you. Is there some dolts there? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, you've no idea. Yeah, please don't be impressed. I okay, promise you. I will never be impressed again. But you, you studied English, and then you wanted to be a journalist, but that does involve the phone a lot. So I'm intrigued no, about that. Yeah, it does. I mean, actually, I was a journalist. Um, when was it? Now it's probably early nineties, ninety six, and that was the first job I ever had email. So oh, I, relied, I relied heavily on that. And I was, uh, I, I, mean, I wasn't too bad when I was asking the questions face to face. I mean, I did, you know, obviously when I became a journalist in 96, whenever it was, I was kind of the lowest of the lowest of the low. I was the sort of editorial assistant, which is a kind of glorified dog's body, as, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, on the on the arts and books. So I was just taking messages on the phone. It wasn't too, it wasn't too, it wasn't too taxing for me, but I could just, just about get around it. But I think, you know, having a stammer, I think for me in my, certainly my teens and 20s, was just an exercise in hiding it and an exercise in getting around it and pretending you don't have it. And I think the reason why it's had such a, an effect on me is that even as a really young child, if you are a stammerer, you can think of instantly eight or nine different ways to say the same thing. You're constantly rephrasing and um, finding synonyms for problem sounds because all stammerers have difficult sounds that they are unable to launch off on one of mine unfortunately is the letter m so when people said to me what's your name oh no i, I, I couldn't start you can't start sentences like maggie. so i used to have to say you can call me maggie i used to have to launch off oh. with a u and so you are constantly redrafting yourself in your head so it gives you this incredible sensitivity to language and words and meaning and sentence structure and clauses that you can flip and you know that uh, is so formative us. then in you as a writer yeah. and and to when did you realize that you know um, the journalism wasn't it that you wanted to write novels or did that happen at the same time or we or was that always a dream we should say you grew up in Coleraine until six or what age were you when you came two I was two you're only as two you hear from my voice yeah oh. I left <laughs> I, I can't hear a trace of Coleraine there no I know that. I know um, and so, and then we lived in Wales for 10 years and then oh. I moved to Scotland when I was, whatever I was, 13. Yeah. So I was, sorry, I was just in the middle of asking you about when you got into writing fiction and novels and when you realised that was what you really wanted to do. Well, I always knew that I wanted to write ever since I was very little. I've always known that I had that urge to put 
words down on paper to transpose experience or imagination into into text. I've never really known a time without it. Um, but I so I did start writing. I, I wrote my first two novels when I was still working full time at the newspaper. I used to work for the Independent on Sunday in London. Um, and I mean, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't it was more a kind of sense of slippage. You know, I when I left the newspaper in 2000, um, it was because I, I thought I wanted to go freelance. I was freelance, uh, being a freelance journalist and writing pieces for different places and interviews and things. And and then gradually I said the novels kind of, you know, I was balancing the two for a while. And then I and then I was actually when I had my son, I just thought, you know, I need to I've been teaching as well up to that point. And I just thought, actually, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to need to. I'm going to need to let something go. <laughs> I can't be a mum to this tiny baby and be a journalist and a teacher and a novelist. And so I just, I picked the novelist and a mum. Yeah, the novelist, <laughs> you picked the least kind of, um, the most precarious in a way uh, of them. <laughs> because no, it's true. as we know, there's a lot of writers writing and there's a lot of people who don't ever get to make a living out of it. No, but- absolutely. I realise that. And it's harder now, I think, to, you know, it's harder to have that second string of journalism these days. It's much more difficult than it was in the 90s. Yeah, but so your but your first couple of novels were well received, weren't they? I mean, you got a good start. Yeah, I was very lucky. Yeah, I was really lucky that I got a good start. But it went, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was enough to live on at that, <laughs> at that point, which is why I did the other things at the same time. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about your memoir too, because that was 2017, I think, when that came out. And I mentioned the 17 ways you nearly died. I mean, because memoirs can be, you know, yours is a very unusual memoir in that that's basically what it's about. It's called I Am, I Am, I Am. Is there three I Ams? Yes, I Am, yeah, I Am. that's I am. right. Yes. Sylvia Plath. Yeah. <laughs> and why did you decide that? I suppose you, you just calculated and added up. God, I've had quite a lot of, like I've had two. So that, I consider that quite a lot. But 17, oh. you've really outdone everyone, I think. Well, I think it just seemed to me that it was an interesting uh, lens through which to view a life. You know, I never wanted to write the kind of memoir. I mean, first first of all, I never wanted to write the kind of memoir that was attacks or was exposing to my friends and families, you know, because, you know, it, it's one thing for me to decide to divulge certain things or to write about certain things, but it's quite another to, you know, sort of net in other people in my life in those stories you know, and, and there is quite a question, I think, when you're embarking on a memoir about the ownership of narrative, you know, of course, there were stories that just involved me, but most of them will always, you know, overlap in that Venn diagram way with other people. And there's a question about who owns this story, you know, is it mine or is it the other person's and how will they feel about that? But Maggie, isn't there some writers who would feel like you're a writer and the stuff is yours and, you know, yes, her feelings might be hurt along the way, but it's your kind of duty to get out your narrative and affect the rest of them. I'm just putting the other counter argument. <laughs> no, sure. I think there probably are. I mean, there have been, right. you know, I, I like reading memoirs, and but some of them just take my breath away. And I just think, how did any of your family or your friends ever speak to you again? You know, <laughs> it's kind of jaw dropping. But I, I didn't want to be that person. You know, I think there is a sense. I don't know how I would feel if someone wrote about me. I probably wouldn't like it very much, I don't think. Um but also, there's also the sense, you know, I, I never wanted to write the kind of chronological plod memoir either. I didn't want to start with, you know, I was born in Coleraine and then and then and then, you know, that didn't interest me at all. So in a sense, the, the, the memoir I wrote isn't constructed chronologically. Um, and I've never really been a fan of chronology anyway as a propulsive narrative force. Um, but I wanted to, I, I wrote it in terms of body parts. So it's organised in terms of body parts. So it does slip forward and backwards in time, which at the same time is useful because it allows you to skip five years. You know, it allows you to keep back things that you don't want to divulge about yourself or about others. So nobody in the book 
in the memoir is named at all. Actually, apart from my husband, he's the only one who has his name. So my siblings and my parents and my children, they're not named. And you couldn't do that if you were writing chronologically. And also you couldn't skip five years because your reader would quite rightly think, hang on a second, <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, that was quite a clever way, I think, of writing about yourself, but also very different. And I think it's sort of what you do is you I think everything you do is very original and it's never, you know, what you, you might expect. Can you tell us um, a couple of the ways you nearly died? Maybe the ones that you consider to be the worst or the scariest um, experiences? <laughs> well, there was a time when I was ill as a child. Um, and there was a time when, as a very rash teenager, I jumped off a harbour wall in Scotland. Uh, this was at night uh, into into an outgoing tide. I mean, yeah, so stupid. The kind of thing that I think about my own children now and it gives me the absolute shivering horrors. Um what else? Then there was something to do with a man, wasn't there? That uh... Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. This is the women's Someone podcast. Else. This might be of interest to our, our listeners. Yeah. I actually, I hate talking about this one, but I will, I'll say it briefly. Uh, so I went on a hike when I was uh, living abroad and I met a man that I knew straight away in that way that you do or in that instinct that you have to hone as a woman, unfortunately, when if something doesn't feel right, you know, and... You feel it in your body, a sense, I think, before you feel it in your brain. And I had to just talk my way out of it. But he went on uh, to uh, murder somebody not long afterwards. Yeah, I can see why you don't want to talk about it. But thank you for giving us that uh, brief insight into it. So you've had you've had a very big spectrum of different experiences from the kind of <laughs> self-inflicted jumping one to, you know, illness and, and those things. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you didn't anyway. That's good that you're still here. It's incredible that you've lived to survive to tell the tale. <laughs> I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky. <laughs> does, does, it, does it actually feed into that? Do you, I mean, we're all supposed to be very grateful all the time now. That's a very big thing. You know, it's, it's good for the health. <laughs> but I say when you've escaped. The gratitude industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, God, that's a big one. Um, but you 17 times. I mean, do you, do you have that sense? Because you have had those brushes uh, with mortality, say, is it ever present I, in a way? It is, I think. I mean, I mean, not in a kind of glib, I want to <laughs> tell everybody about it way, no. certainly not. But uh, having said that, I did write a book about it. But uh, I suppose I think what I think the engine behind the book for me in a way was examining what the near death experience does to us, you know, how it changes us, how we what happens to us when we've come back from the brink of mortality, you know, when we've had a view into that chasm? Because I think it does. I think all these experiences, you know, large or small, and we've all had them, you know, some more than others and some more serious than others, certainly. But we do come back different. We come back a bit wiser and a bit sadder, I think. And with that awareness of what might have happened and also what we might have stood to lose mm. had the worst happened. So I wanted to, I suppose, write a book examining the mechanism of it in our lives. You've also spoken about because your daughter has very severe allergies, but that mm. high alert for, for with that as well. I mean, actually, I was I was reading about it, what you've said, and I was thinking about um, in my daughter's school at the moment, they can't bring in any peanuts, right, into the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting, you know, if you don't have it in your life, your reaction is kind of like, oh, you know, well, I can't put peanut butter, it's okay. And then I was reading about your experiences and thinking, oh my God, I will never, ever think anything about it. Because, you know, the way it's hard for people to understand how no, of powerful that is. Could, would you mind yeah. telling us a little bit about that? Because I'm sure lots of listeners have various understandings of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the main problem with the perception of the problem with the perception of allergies is that allergy is a very um, umbrella term. You know, it covers all kinds of things from 
somebody who might sneeze with something or maybe get a stomachache to, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is anaphylactic shock, which of course can lead to. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Death, either from suffocation or from cardiac arrest. And that's, and that is, and people don't necessarily understand and of course you know i don't blame anybody for this because unless you've actually lived through it you wouldn't necessarily know but nuts in particular are a huge risk on things like public transport in cinemas in theaters and particularly on airplanes because nuts give off a dust and they give off tiny invisible particles in the air so if you open a big bag of peanuts or whatever on a train there's going to be a big cloud of dust going off and if somebody who's allergic to nuts fatally allergic to them if they inhale even one tiny, tiny milligram particle, they could die and they could die within 10 minutes. And I, that's not an exaggeration. No. And that's a reality that we as a family live with and lots of other people live with too, unfortunately. So whenever I'm on public transport or in a cinema with my daughter, I am constantly looking around. I have this kind of swivel head <laughs> to see what people are eating. And it is, it's terrifying. And and people, you know, and I, it's fine. I'm always really happy if people ask me about it because, you know, I would want to say to people, yeah, it, it's true. You know, your snack could kill my child. That's that's the reality. And it could kill other people. And, you know, if please, if you're on an airplane and they say there's somebody with an allergy, please don't think, oh, it's fine. I'll just open my granola bar because there's a chances are it may not be. I think it's really important. I know we should know these things, but like hearing you talk about it, I do think it gets in on me now. So not that I'm saying I was complaining, but it's kind of like, oh, I can't do that. But now I'll be like, well, I definitely won't. And it's terrible, you know. Uh, no, you just I know. Well, much- I, have, I have a very strong memory. Before I had my daughter, I at my son's, I think it was fourth or fifth birthday party, I served a cake with almond in it. And I look back at that now and I think, Jesus, what was I thinking? These were, you know, 20 kids. I mean, obviously, if there had been someone with an yeah. I wouldn't have done it. But I just, I mean, the idea that it might have been also, I mean, just, oh, it gives me the shivers when I think about it Yeah, And just on that, I mean, I don't want to go on about it too much, but I do find that living with that, I'm thinking of you with your swivel head. Do you ever, I mean, you can't really relax then. I'm just thinking, you know, being out and about with, with your daughter. It's, it's a different kind of parenting experience, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Than- it is. But I think, you know, I think anyone who has a child or a family member with a high level of need, whatever that might be, they will know that you that you just it becomes part of your life. You yeah. just fold it into the ways you know you live. And I know, and we all know that we never leave the house without her medication. And I always have to know where she is, and I have to make sure that whoever she's with knows what to do and knows where her medication is. You know, and I think that you just set up structures in your life, and you just you just get on with it because what other choice do you have, really? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think it is hard, you know. And I think it's a bit like living in a city state, you know, where you and the people who live with you, you know all the rules and you know the the boundaries that we have to establish, but not necessarily everybody looking in will. And I think you always have to be patient with that because people, 
you know, nine times out of 10, people are very kind and will go, you know, the second mile to help you. But there's always that one time in 10 that people are, you know, a pain in the you know what. <laughs> to use the technical <laughs> <That> term. <laughs> and, you know, there's no point, there's no point in wasting anger. You know, there have been times when I've said to people on a train, you know, would you mind not eating that? And most people say, of course not. And I say, I'll buy you something else at the snack bar, whatever. But some people will say, someone once said to me, well, it's my human right to eat it. And I thought, well, I could argue, but actually, or we could just change carriages, you know, and, you know, there's no point. There's no point in having a fight about this because, you know, this is whatever, whatever issues they're demonstrating are there, they're not mine. So we just got up and we went somewhere else and, you know, carried on. <laughs> okay, well, let's get on to the marriage portrait. And uh, it's uh, first of all, it's an amazing book. And I, I just want to say I'm not very good with historical novels. I'm, <laughs> and I love reading. Obviously, I read loads of books, but I, I have to kind of, you know, oh, I have to read this thing that's set very, very long ago. And I, I find it a bit more of a chore. Um, but I have to say with Hamnet, which was your last book before this one, and um, and The Marriage Portrait, I didn't have that issue at all. So I want to commend you, first of all, for making me be able to be interested in these worlds that are so... Well, thank you. Yeah. That's very nice. Very That's nice. the biggest compliment I can pay you. But also the fact is both of them are total page turners as well. And you just get so engrossed to want to know what happens to these people. The characters are so brilliantly drawn. So tell me about Lucrezia di Cosimo de Medici, who also was a real person. <laughs> like Hamlet even though obviously it's it's historical fiction how did you get interested in her in the first place well I have to say it was via the poem by Robert Browning My Last Duchess which is probably his most famous poem and I really love his dramatic monologues um you know he borrowed the form from the theatre from the from the soliloquy and he made it his own in a sense because he wrote these poems where um, the narrator is speaking straight to you, the listener, or sometimes actually a kind of interlocutor. And they're often people tell, divulging sort of against their will or against, you know, it's something they haven't realised they're divulging big sort of deep secrets of theirs. So the most famous one is My Last Duchess, and it's about a duke um, revealing a portrait of his previous wife and saying, look, isn't she lovely? And, oh, by the way, I, I killed her. Uh, <laughs> he's actually talking to the to the representative of his next wife's family, which I was thinking is... <laughs> It's quite an interesting detail. But I, I just, I've always loved the poem and I was rereading them again, which I do sometimes, particularly when I'm between books. And I just was wondering to myself one day, I wonder if it was based on real events because some of his poems are. So I, I looked it up and within a few minutes I had her name, Lucrezia uh, de' Medici. And I found out that she was 15 when she married him. And a year later, when she was 16, she was dead and there were rumours that he had poisoned her. Um, and her portrait, interestingly, in Florence is displayed in a gallery which is about five minutes walk from Robert Browning's house in no and so is it probably that he he saw that and wrote it based on I don't know who knows but I think it's a weird coincidence maybe it's not a coincidence can it be a coincidence I'm not sure it takes yeah five minutes um and so I and I just I I looked at the port that online because this was all spring 2020, so I don't need to explain why. <laughs> no, <laughs> I you don't. I think we understand. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere at that point. Um and as soon as I saw a project, which actually you can see here. Oh, show there. me actually. Sorry, I know listeners won't be yeah. Oh, I see her. I know oh, no yes. one can see her. She's right here. Um yeah, as soon as I saw it, she looks, I'll tilt it up so you can see. She looks Yes, very I'm just look, I'm just gonna tell everyone I'm looking at the portrait of Lucretia on this lovely cork board that Maggie has. Yeah. She's beautiful. <laughs> She is gorgeous. And she's 15 there, obviously, because that was the she's when the portrait 50. was being painted. Yeah, it was just before she left to join him in uh, Ferrara. So she's 15. And actually what interests me, I think what struck me originally when I first saw it is that most Renaissance portraits, people, the subjects often look quite blank. They look very expressionless. 
uh, probably because it was quite boring sitting for it all that time. But, uh, but actually, Lucrezia looks, she looks really anxious. She looks worried and she looks as though she has something she wants to say. Um, oh, and-, and I just thought, as soon as I saw it, it was really weird. It was an extraordinary thing, which has never happened to me before. As soon as I saw her and looked into her eyes, I just knew I had my next book, you know, and I could almost see the book in front of me. I could see the structure of it. I could, and I wish it had more often like that, Rosine, but it doesn't. No, <laughs> but, but uh, having lot. said that, I mean, I remember reading, I think it's Big Magic is the name of the book by Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you've read that book. No, I haven't. It's, it's a really yeah. good book about inspiration, basically. It's about the mm. ideas. And it's it sounds like a totally like a story from that book. As in, I'm going to write it down. It's really, it's really good. It's actually good for, you know, writer's block and things. And just, yeah. it, it's it's about the magic of exactly what you've just described. Something comes and suddenly it's like, it's whether you take, where you, you follow that thread or you just go, oh, that's an idea. Mm. And then two years later, you find out someone else has written that book that you were going to uh, write yeah. and how you need to grasp those moments and exactly what you did. Yeah, yeah. You, you went for it. it because frail, that, it? that's a very big task, um, I think, to take, you know, to look at a, a portrait like that and then to essentially imagine, I mean, Presumably a lot of the book is imaginings of yours of what might have happened, but it's based in some kind of reality, obviously. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's not a huge amount known about Lucrezia herself. Obviously, her life was so short, you know, um, and we know when she was born and when she got married and we know when she died. Um, but actually, it, obviously, you know, her surname, she's she's a Medici. And so there is a lot written about the Medicis and a lot about their houses and habits and lives and there's there is there is quite a lot about some of her siblings so one of her sisters was Isabella de Medici who was quite a famous patron of the arts um, after their mother died this was after Lucrezia was dead mm. she became the kind of honorary first lady of Florence and she lived a very how shall I put it gregarious life um, <laughs> so she's a very cut she was actually murdered by her husband her husband suffocated her with a friend when she was 35 um, with the tacit approval of her brother Right. Who was it then, Grandier? I know it's astonishing. Uh, and also, their other brother, one of their other brothers, Pietro, murdered his wife as well. There was quite a lot of exorcide on the brand this time. So, so in a sense, it wasn't too, it wasn't too much of a stretch to kind of flesh out the world and the milieu and the family of Lucrezia, because because their history is all very accessible. And of course, the you know the Renaissance, the Renaissance Florence is such a time is a mm. time that's so vivid still in our world. You know, we can look up online anything that's on the Uffizi catalogue we know what the, the sculptor and the architecture looks like it's all I mean most of it's still there astonishingly but in a sense she herself is is quite mysterious but in a way I think that those kind of gaps would be frustrating to a historian or a biographer but to a novelist they can be <laughs> you can see them as a kind of opportunity yeah. to fill them with whatever well, narrative well she's you kind yourself. of like the way you tell her anyway the character that you've created she's she's like this incredible young woman who's so talented and vibrant and different maybe and wants other things than what she's being you know at that mm. stage she, she's her life is mapped out for her she's going to have to marry yeah. she's going to have to and she sees her sisters and other people having to follow that but she doesn't really want to but then her mm. sister dies which yep. means she gets Maria. betrothed to the man that he, she her sister was going to marry, and yeah, she has standing bride. She yeah. can't do anything about it. Mm. So it's it, tell us about that. What happens to her and how she how she manages that and navigates it because he seems like a nice guy, then it turns out he really isn't. Mm. Well, originally Alfonso, Alfonso Duca Ferrara was due to marry her oldest her eldest sister Maria, um, but Maria sadly died at the age of seventeen uh, of tuberculosis, and not long after. Lucrezia, who was 13 at the time, um, was betrothed to Alfonso. She was ushered in as the stand-in. 
So I think the Medici's, you know, and essentially these marriages were political mergers, you know, between city states, because this is Italy before Italy existed. You know, at this time, the country that became Italy was it was a series of quite fragmented regional um, duchies. Um, often they, they were sometimes amicable, they were sometimes not. And I think the Medici's wanted to, uh, you know, form an alliance with the, with the rulers of Ferrara because they were very, uh, they were very ancient aristocratic family that went right back to the Roman Empire. Whereas the Medici's, um, I think, were probably, I think Cosimo, her father, was quite aware that the Medici's were viewed as quite nouveau riche, you know, a little bit arabiste. They had been a generation or two before merchants of all shocking things. So I think they were hoping in marrying one of their daughters to the Estes, um, they were hoping for a bit of, you know, nobility. And I think uh, Alfonso was probably quite pleased with the dowry that he got, which is, I discovered, the equivalent for £50 million. You know, I mean, that's the kind of money that was being exchanged here. So Lucrezia, you know, in a sense, she yeah, she had no choice. She was destined to make a marriage that was advantageous to her father's region. But at the same time, you know, going back to the, what you were saying about historical novels, you know, when I was writing this and also Hamlet, actually, I, I never, I avoided thinking to myself, I am now sitting down and writing a historical capital H novel. This is history with a capital H. I wanted to treat it as I would any other kind of novel. And, and part of that is a kind of, I feel anyway, a very deep-seated belief that, um, you know, although the world has changed unrecognisably, you know, Lucrezia's world is unrecognisable to ours, uh, you know, in some ways that's very, it's a very good thing. But uh, at the same time, I don't really believe that the human spirit and mind and brain has changed much at all. You know, although, you know, you can walk into your feet scene, you can see these very young girls in, in their marriage portraits dressed up in the most extraordinary jewels and silks and looking quite pleased with themselves. Um, I, I refuse to believe that all those girls were happy with marrying often complete strangers who were twice their age. I, I just don't believe it. I, I don't believe it. Knowing women as we know them today, it, it's impossible, you know, and especially actually one of the things that was quite forward thinking and unusual actually about her parents, Cosimo and Eleonora, who actually you can see right here. Okay, um, let me have a look at that. Oh God. <laughs> there's dad, Cosimo. Lo- oh yeah. I always he was painted, look- he was always painted. I mean he commissioned these portraits. He was always painted in his armor. Right. Which is funny because he never actually fought in a battle. Oh. And there's mommy as Eleonora who was Well they had sport. quite the relationship, didn't they? Not to go off topic a they tiny did. bit. I liked the kind of they were both, I mean, quite yeah. sexually into each other. Like, it didn't seem to be... Well, as... they had 12 children, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> she seemed to be, well, from your telling of it, she didn't mind. She was quite enjoying... She was, yeah, she was quite something. Actually. I mean, they, their marriage was was partially arranged. I mean, he saw her when she was very young and he decided that's who he wanted to marry. Um, but she, I mean, she didn't seem to have a huge amount of choice in it. But actually, I think very unusually for their class and time, they adored each other, absolutely yeah. adored each other. And clearly physically as well as uh, everything else. But also they, uh, she was a very capable, intelligent woman and he used to cede the rule of Tuscany to her when he was absent, which was a very shocking Very unusual, all, that's all the All the courtiers thing. were horrified because so suddenly think... they had to... But she was more than up for the job. But the other thing they were very unusual in is that they educated Lucrezia and her sisters alongside the boys, um, which again is, you know, not didn't really happen. So Lucrezia and her sisters would have had the most astonishingly you know, elite education that money could possibly buy in Florence. So they would have had, you know, very, very famous artists teaching them drawing, classical scholars teaching them antiquities. They would have spoken several languages. They would have been proficient in musical instruments. I mean, you know, Lucrezia was highly educated. And I just don't believe 
for one minute that all that intelligence and education could just vanish and you become this decorative duchess consort producing children you know I don't think that you you know I think anyone I think all you know all women have the capacity to rail against whatever strictures society put on them but especially if you have all that education and knowledge how could you possibly just meekly go into this yoke I think that's what's really interesting about it. And I think you've hit on why your historical novels don't turn me off the way other people's historical novels do, because I found myself very much in her head and I found myself being able to relate to her or relate to her predicament, even though it was quite an unusual one and set in in the 1550s. And, you know, how can I relate to it? But I did. And one of the things is, I think it's kind of quite... um, I suppose she's just such a feminist for her time, I think. Would that would you agree with that? Were they, they if there was such a thing? I mean, especially <laughs> and I don't want to have any spoilers and so tell me if you think it's too much, but I I'm thinking about the 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 nature of her relationship with her husband and her discovery that she was going to have to have sex with him because she mm. wasn't really told anything about sex. She didn't know no. really what that was and it I found it quite viscerally shocking for her, this realisation that this was now her duty, her life. Mm. And he wasn't a very, he was a very unkind, sort of horrible husband, right, in many ways. But the sex bit really got to me. I found it very moving and upsetting, actually. Well, it was part of the story that I, you know, obviously it was not something that I relished at all, you know, writing that scene. And actually for the first few drafts, I just thought, I, I can't face it. I can't. Who wants to write a scene between a girl having, I mean, essentially non-consensual, a 15-year-old girl having non-consensual sex. Being raped, essentially, even though she's married to this person. That's Yeah, what it, I mean, he married her, like. yeah, and that's part of the deal. But actually, and I did wonder, well, I thought, well, how much would she have known? You know, would her mother have told her? I'm not sure she would. Would, it, would her nursemaid have told her? Who would have told her? Who would have said, this is what happens? I'm not sure in those days. I don't know. I, I, and it was, mm. you know, mystifying to me. And then she has a kind of slightly elusive, uh, you know, strange conversation with her sister and her sister doesn't really tell her either. So I did know I did. It was something that I I did shy away from. And I thought I, I can't face even thinking about it, let alone writing about it. But then at the same time, I thought, well, I have to do this story justice because this happened. You know, we know that, you know, that, that, <laughs> that this was part of the deal. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm not, however, fervently I would wish otherwise there's always there was always the sense in the back of my head that you know even though I I I, I wish it would otherwise there are still 15 year old girls being sold into marriage in certain cultures and, and places in the world and so I thought well I owe it I owe it to them or I owe it to the, you know to the Lucretias of this world to write this scene properly yeah but anyway I just I had to put the book down after that particular scene I think there's a few mentions of it or a few it, it encounters but there's one in particular that was I do think it's important, though, and I do. I felt I felt it. I was even more invested because of those scenes, actually, and in her sort of fight to, you know, to not be killed. You know what I mean? Which essentially mm. is what she's tries to do at the end. And again, I don't want to get into to spoilers. Well, how much research did you have to do? How do you paint a world like that? Um, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere, but I presume eventually you got to Florence, <laughs> obviously, because you saw the portrait. But, um, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no shortage of books about that time in history, both sort of historical, bi- biographical books about the Medicis and um, also about the world, you know, about the world of the Renaissance. Um, but it was, I mean, in a sense, I had to write the book counterintuitively the other way around because, uh, you know, if the world had been working normally in spring 2020, I would have gone quite quickly to uh, Florence and Ferrara to do some footwork in a sense. Um, and I was lucky in a way. I used to live quite near Florence, so I knew Florence quite well. And I'd been to the Palazzo Vecchio, where where the book, the Florence part of the book, is set. 
but I'd never set foot in Ferrara, which did worry me a lot because I have a, a very strict rule that I would never write about anywhere that I've never been. Ah. So I was worried. But then eventually I did get to Italy. As soon as travel restrictions lifted last year, um, I got myself on a plane and went to Italy, which was an act at that time which required more admin than actually buying my house. Um, (laughs) But but I was quite nervous because I thought, what if I've got it all wrong? You know, you go to these places. and um, But in a way, it wasn't so much getting it wrong. It was just those... It was just the detail and the feel and the the minutiae of it all. You know, there was one point where I was standing in the Castello in Ferrara and I'd looked at all these rooms, you know, on on Google and Google Maps and I'd looked at photographs of them all. So I knew it in a sense and I'd looked at maps, but I was standing in the main salon in the in the Castello and I noticed that the the um the sunlight reflecting off the moat several stories below was superimposed in a certain angle on the frescoes on the ceiling. And I thought, well, that that's exactly why I'm here, because those are details. However, There's no yeah, way I could spend hours looking at the maps on on the Internet. I would never know that that could happen unless I was standing in the That's stairway. amazing. I love that little detail. And um, I mean, again, I don't want to go into too much, but there's a little scene at the end in a kitchen with a little door going out the back. Was that something that was there or were there things like that? Were there details as detailed as that that you could come from being there? Yes, the building, the building which in which the novel ends, sorry, starts and ends, yes. um, is a real building. But I, I spent quite a long time before I was going to Italy emailing um, the kind of county council, is the sort of equivalent of Ferrara, saying I'd really like to see inside this building. It's called the Rocca di Stellata. Yeah. And it's a kind of, it's just like a tiny little fortress on the river. And I got absolutely nowhere. <laughs> Eventually I went there and I was talking to... Um, basically the secretary of the mayor saying, I mean, it was it. and eventually I got an email from the mayor's office saying it was damaged in an earthquake in 2017. Nobody can go in that building, not even, <laughs> at which point I had to give up. Oh, okay, well, you, you, you took it to that level where they were like, eh, will you just <laughs> Yeah, it's literally a ruin. It's, it's not safe. No one's allowed in, not even the engineers. So I did, I, I cycled it and I spent a long time walking around it, but I've never been in. So I'm hoping ah. at some point. It'll be, you know, that that there'll be some kind of refurbishment and I can go back and have a look. I mean, I just can't recommend it enough. I think people are going to get completely lost in her story. And it's, uh, yeah, you're just really rooting for her. And she's so intelligent. She's so artistic. She's so creative. She's a brilliant person. And then to think that, you know, well, I won't say, we won't say what happens. You said it, we know at the beginning that she thinks she's going to be killed. That's, let's just put Mm -hmm. it like that. And that's where we, and then we go back into her life and we find out who she is and everything. Let's talk about Hamlet because Hamlet won loads of prizes. It's another brilliant novel. Hamlet was something you'd been interested in from, for a young age. Like, I think you Mm. dressed up as Hamlet once, did you? (laughs) I did. You know what? It's very weird. You should say that because I, yeah, I did dress up as Hamlet when I was about 16 and it was a fancy dress party. And, uh, I've told people that story and they've said, are there any photos? And I've said, no, there aren't any. But weirdly, last weekend, I went out with a school friend of mine and she produced a photo no. of it. That's so amazing. Funny. And the really funny thing is, is that there's a photo of me dressed as Hamlet and I'm next to my sister, who's about 13, and she's dressed as a medic. And weirdly, I went on to write a book about Hamlet and she went on to be a medic. And I said to her, you'll never believe, look at this photograph of us dressed up, you know, aged 13 and 16 and you know that's very weird. weird and you have a it's photograph really to prove now so it's not just <laughs> I know, some I story sent it to my sister and I said you will not believe what I've just been <laughs> that's incredible so yeah, you have the lure towards but the thing about it is and the thing that in both books what you're doing is illuminating the lives of 
two, well, one very young woman, one slight, one older woman, in the same century, because Ham, Ham, Hamlet is set in the late 1500s and, and um, yeah. Lucretia's marriage portraits in the mid 1500s. Two women that, whose stories, like Shakespeare's wife, essentially, it's all about mm. her and kind of her incredible um, life and the son, Hamlet. Um, is, is that kind of something that you're interested in? Is that what gets you going? Like this, there's these people in these, in historical lives who are never really, the story, their stories aren't told. We know all about the famous people. We know about the Medici's, but mm. these other um, smaller, in a way, people, I want to, I want to tell their stories. Is that the kind of motivation? Yeah, I think so. I think I've always been interested in, in the kind of understory, in a sense, the, the story behind the story of history. You know, I think there's a kind of motif that runs through the marriage portrait, which is, the idea that quite a lot of Renaissance artists, probably because they were poor, had to paint over other paintings. So often when you see a really famous painting, there are other, there can be other iterations of that painting, other versions. If you look, if you people have x-rayed the Mona Lisa, say, and have discovered that da Vinci did different versions of the expression before it's, you know, settling on the final. But there are also paintings underneath other paintings. And that really intrigues me as a kind of, as a metaphor for the the idea of history that interests me it's the stories the people whose stories are written in water in a sense you know you can look at history and think well this is this is the official version but actually there must be many many other interpretations behind it is there pressure writing about historical things I mean well there obviously is pressure you don't want to get anything wrong you need to depict it in the right way but is do you have to let go a bit of a bit of that as well at the same time in order to tell your story I think you do I mean I think if you are going to write about real people, you're going to write fiction based on real events and real people. You do have, a, I think anyway, or I feel a sense of quite a deep sense of responsibility towards them to get as much as you possibly can write, you know, because even though Lucrezia in my book and her husband and family are, you know, they are fictional characters in my book, they are still people and their bones are lying in Florence and Ferrara. And you've got to always remember that you've got to respect that. So I have a very strict rule that even if I find in the process of writing it, I find out something that does maybe doesn't quite fit with what I want to say. I will never just pretend I didn't read that book. <laughs> I have to, I have to absorb it. I have to find a way around it. You know, that's yeah. my sense of responsibility to them. And would um, they have, this might be a stupid question, but are there descendants? Are there actual people who once were related to all of those people? Oh, the Medici's. Well, I have to, so a friend of mine told me that apparently there are Medici's on Instagram who will pose with, Ferraris these days instead of a, an exotic menagerie, which I love it. I mean, I'm not on Instagram, but I would love <laughs> if I ever am, or maybe someone will let me use their account so I can have a look. I, I'd be fascinated. I mean, well, I wonder, be, I wonder what they'll think of, of the book as well, like of the story. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Um, just speaking of identity, I mean, we talked about you being in Coleraine until you were two, and your parents are from Northern Ireland, both of them. Is that right? My dad's from Dublin. Oh, yeah. your dad's from Dublin. Okay. Yeah. So you're, do you feel Irish? Like, and I know you've got an Irish passport, which is a handy thing to have these days. Very in handy. Yeah, my kids have got them now too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about your husband? <laughs> he sadly is not Irish. Oh, poor <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. When we go abroad, we, we can sail through the EU channel and he gets stuck in the, he gets tangled up in the Brexit British channel. Yeah. But just speaking about feeling Irish, how Irish do you feel or how important is it to you? It's very important to me and it's a huge part of my identity. And, I really like it when often you come through, uh, you know, the airport and you, you show and people will say, welcome home. And I love that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's a complicated thing, you know, because I, I'm quite wary of going around claiming to be Irish, you know, in my very, I'm very conscious of my British accent, you know, and I don't want to be one of those people who, I don't want to be like those people who claim to be Irish and they've got maybe one 
you know, <laughs> great, great, great grandparent who's Irish, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, plastic pottery around the world. And, I, and I, 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 I'm sort of reluctant to be that. But no, it's very important to me. And I love being in Ireland and I, I do feel at home there. You know, I really do. And it's a very important part of my and identity. Of course, Hamlet won Best Book at the Doki Book Festival as well. I was a judge on that, so I can say that's it now. Right. Like, that's the last time I spoke to you. I yeah. But I, it was an amazing. My dad, my dad is from Dorky. Ah, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't so realise that. He was that. very chuffed. I say he was. That's great. But I mean, I just remember the judging session and how we just all felt so much the same about Hamlet and what a joy oh. it was to talk about it and to all agree. You know what I mean? There wasn't any fight or anything oh. like that. So. Well, that's very nice to know. Yeah, it was wonderful. But what are you working on now, Maggie, before you go? Well, I can't tell you too much because I'm very stupid. This goes back to what we were saying about ideas and Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, I'm quite superstitious talking yeah. about things I haven't finished, particularly the first draft, just because I feel if I talk about it, that I'm, I, it's going to kind of drain me of the urge to write it. But I can say it's set in Paris. Oh, OK. Excellent. Because I have never been to Paris, so I will enjoy vicariously um, oh. reading that. It's one of those things that, you know, but I'm worried that it won't never happen. I keep going, oh, I'll save it for a special time. But I feel like I should just get on a plane and go to Paris. Get over just it. Just do it, Roisin. Yeah, Life I was too short. <laughs> I will. And listen, congratulations on all the acclaim because, you know, you've been steadily working away, I think, in the last few books. Like Hamlet was such a huge success. I think this one, how long has it been out, The Marriage Portrait? Um... I can't remember two, three months. Or All right, but I can imagine. I do feel it's going to, um, you know, it, I don't know if it's been nominated for anything yet, or but I feel like it's is the feedback it's, good. It's on the Irish, the Unpost Irish books, yeah, novel of the year, which is really nice. Yeah, it's well, it's it's yeah. just wonderful, and I want to tell anyone listening who sort of is a bit iffy about historical novels, don't worry, this is not like the ones you've read or that you've tried <laughs> to get on with. It just transported me, and I I I just found it so. Yeah, it was captivating. And thank you very much for all your writing because it's all like that. Um, and it's been lovely talking to you as well. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you again, Rosie. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can contact us by email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.